Well, if you're new with us, I want to assure you that I'm not normally the one up here, okay? So, so if, if you're like, eh, I don't know, just come back next week, Pastor Lane is preaching, and, and it'll be, you, you'll, be, you'll be glad you, you came back, okay? Um, well, I want to tell you guys a story. Today, we're talking about the miracle of promise, the miracle of promise, and uh, when I think about promises, I think about when I was in college, my, my best friend from growing up, he wanted to buy my car. And let me tell you, it, it wasn't much of a car. Um, but but he, he, he really needed it and he wanted to buy it from me, but he couldn't pay me. So he said he would make payments. You ever had a friend like that? And he said, he said dude, I promise I will pay you back. And I was like, you got to understand the transmission is, is, is shaky. I've already had it replaced once. I don't know. It keeps going out. It's, it's, it's a big risk. He's like, I know, I know, but, but I, I, it'll all work out. It'll be fine. I promise I'll pay you back. Well, sure enough, the transmission went out. Well, eight years later, he wanted to borrow some more money, and I still hadn't received a payment yet. Dude, I promise I'll pay you back. Dude, you know I'm going to pay you back. I, I promise, right? It's like... Yeah, but you don't, here's the thing. When you say that sentence, it means something different to you than what that sentence means to me. You ever had a friend like that, right? So that was the friend who helped me decide that as a policy, I don't loan money to friends, right? So for one thing, uh, because I don't know if I'm ever going to get it back. And the second thing is, it kind of put a little strain on our relationship, right? Because it was always promises, promises. My mom used to sing promises, promises. I'm all through with promises now. You ever heard that? Oh, anyway. My singing probably didn't help. Okay. So, uh, so anyway, it reminded me uh, when, I, when I lived in Africa, I had this friend Modupe, and he told the story of when he found these fishermen, and they, they, were, they were doing great. They were catching all this fish, and they, what they really needed was a better boat. So he, he gave them a loan to buy this better boat where they would make lots of money, they'd catch lots of fish, they'd have plenty of money to, to make their payment, and it was going to be a great, just a great business arrangement. They promised they would pay him back. And right before they closed uh, on the deal, he said, you know what, there's an important uh, change I need to make uh, to, to the contract. And they said, Mr. Modepe, just, just write whatever you need to on there. It's fine. That should have been his first clue that he was never going to get any payments for that fishing boat. But that's the nature of, of promises. When we think about promises, it, it really has to do with the character of the person promising, doesn't it? Right? If somebody makes you a promise and they're the kind of person who doesn't follow through on their promises, the promise doesn't mean much. But if that person is a person of character and it, it's important to them to fulfill those promises, then we can take that promise seriously which makes it all the worse when somebody you did trust breaks their promises to you, doesn't it? Today, I want us to explore some of God's promises like we've been singing about, the miracle of promise, and perhaps more importantly, what we do when it seems like, seems like those promises are broken. Let's dive right in. One of the important promises God makes early in the Bible is to Abraham, now, I realize his name isn't changed to Abraham yet. That doesn't come until chapter 17, but go with me. We'll just call him Abraham, okay? So we're going to read this from, from Genesis 15. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. Remember, this is before Abraham, this is before Isaac is born. And Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted him as righteous. 
because of his faith, because he believed God's promise. Then the Lord told him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as your possession. And, and, and God, describes, uh, God describes what that land is going to be, all the way from, from the Nile River to the Euphrates River, much bigger than, than the kingdom of Israel ever actually got. And that's why that land is called the promised land, because God promised it to Abraham and Abraham's descendants. And notice that it is an unconditional promise. It's not a, if you continue to obey me, if you continue to honor me, then I'm going to do this for you, right? It's an unconditional promise. God promises Abraham numerous descendants and possession of the land he's in, a land later described as a land flowing with milk and honey. And it's at the crossroads of the two largest continents on the planet. So it's strategically important and can lead to great wealth in commerce, right? We call this the Holy Land, Palestine. Once Abraham left his home in Ur of the Chaldeans, the rest of his life he was a nomad, just, just wandered around. He never had a permanent place. He lived in tents the rest of his life, but he was promised a land, a home. We all need a place to call our own, don't we? I was uh, talking with uh, Dr. Aaron Tyler, who's a, an international expert on human rights, and he said that an important human right and a major concern for the poorest homeless in the world, a, a, an important human right is an address, a place where you belong, a place that you can say is your home. And that's what God promised to Abraham and all of his offspring, a place they could call their own, a place to belong. Turn to your neighbor and say, I need a place of my own. Um, 50% participation, okay. Um, the next promise I want, us, I want us to look at is a promise that God made to King David. This is about 600 years after Abraham. Now, for context, this is after David became king over all of Israel. He had ruled in Hebron where he ruled just over Judah, but this is when he becomes fully king over all of Israel, okay, for the history nerds, to, so you know. Okay, and uh, so it's 2 Samuel 7, and, and this is where, where David is ordering everything, and God is just pouring blessing out on David, and David is honoring God through all of it. And 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, God says to David, your house and your kingdom, so your house like your dynasty, will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. Notice again, this is an unconditional promise. There's no requirement for David and his descendants. Now, there's a hint that maybe God says this another time and there, and there is a condition. But here, when he says it to David, it's unconditional. Okay? There, it, it, it depends entirely on God. So by extension, all of the children of Israel receive the promise of a king to rule over them. A king chosen and established by God and descended from King David. Am I doing something wrong here, Mr. Allen? It, it, it's, it seems jumpy. Okay. Try to be still. All right. Um, okay, let me say that again. All the children of Israel received this promise of a king to rule over them, a king chosen and established by God and descended from King David, a man after God's own heart. Right? So we, we, we live in a time where we, we, we get excited about a politician and then that politician gets elected and then they kind of disappoint us. Anybody ever had that experience? I've had it on like every single election I've been alive in, okay? So, but what we really want is we want, we want a leader who is righteous, who is dependable, who, who is who they say they are, who, who does what they say they'll do, right? And, and, and what, we, what we really want is we want somebody established by God, right? 
Now, 250 years ago, we were like, uh, we don't need a king, right? And, and that was very convenient for us in America, right? We don't need a, div- but, but before that, we always believed that the king was established by God, right? And so what we really need is a righteous king. Okay, I'm going to give you guys another chance. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, I need a righteous king. Oh, much better, much better, much better. The third and final promise I, I want us to, to, to look at is the promise that God made to David's son, Solomon. This is in 1 Kings chapter 8. So the context here is, King, remember, David wanted to build a temple for God, and God said, no, it's not for you. Solomon is going to do it. Your son is going to do it. So now Solomon has built this magnificent temple and he's dedicating it. There's thousands of people who are gathered for the dedication ceremony. They're, they're sacrificing uh, animals to, to glorify God. And he, he's just built it. And now he's praying before all the Israelites who are gathered there. And, and he realizes the silliness of what he's done. He says, but will God really dwell on earth? Why, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple I've built And then he continues, if your people Israel are defeated someday, someday if your people Israel are defeated by their enemies because they've sinned against you and they turn to you and acknowledge your name and pray to you here in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and return them to this land you gave their ancestors. You see, the the promise of a temple is really the promise of God's presence, Right? The, the, the Ark of the Covenant, which, where, where God dwelt, was, was in a tent, and, and David built himself a palace and wanted to build a temple that was worthy of God's presence, signified by the Ark of the Covenant. And, and, and as magnificent as this building was, Solomon knew it was silly that the God who created everything can't live in a temple made by human hands. But that, that temple was always a, a remembrance. It was a symbol of God's dwelling with his people, God dwelling with Israel. They could always look at it, and, and as the prayer of Solomon describes, they could always look to the temple and pray to God and trust that God would hear them. But what happened, what would happen if the temple wasn't there? Would that mean the presence of God would leave? The important part about, about this promise is that it is conditional. I don't know if we have this one on the screen, but in 1 Kings 8, um, or sorry, 1 Kings 9, the, the next chapter, God is speaking to, to Solomon and he says, for I made this promise to your father, David, reiterating the, the promise of a king. One of your descendants will always sit on the throne of Israel. But if your descendants abandon me and disobey the commands and decrees I've given you, and if you serve and worship other gods, then I will uproot Israel from this land that I have given them. I will reject this temple that I have made holy to honor my name. I will make Israel an object of mockery and ridicule among the nations. And though this temple is impressive now, all who pass by it will be appalled and will gasp in horror. They will ask, why did the Lord do such terrible things to this land and to this temple? Some of God's promises are unconditional, like the land and the king. And some of God's promises depend on our faithfulness, our obedience. Here's the problem for us as people of faith. We presume too much. We listen to the promises of God, but when it comes to God's expectations, obedience, faithfulness, love of neighbor, and love of enemies, we stick our fingers in our ears, don't we? We're fine with God's way until it interferes with our own way. We're the Burger King generation. 
have it your way. Presumption. That's what got the children of Israel. They said to themselves, we're God's people. We're the descendants of Abraham. Remember, God promised Abraham that this land would be for his descendants. So that means that we get to live our whole lives in this land. And we have God's chosen king on the throne, a descendant of King David. And we have God's presence in the temple. So here's the, here's the key, the first key learning for us today. We must never take God's promises for granted, lest we let our own sin derail God's plan for our lives. Let me say it again. We must never take God's promises for granted, lest we let our own sin derail God's plan for our lives. When things are going well, we're tempted to think nothing can go wrong. If you're, like, if you're anything like me, when things are going well, you're just enjoying it. Okay, now we've reached everything going well, and that's the way it's going to be the rest of my life. You ever have that feeling? Until the other shoe drops. But the people of, of God, like, aren't we supposed to, to trust God's character and, and, and trust that God will fulfill his promises? Yeah. But ultimately, the children of Israel, they presumed on God, and they became convinced that even their own sin couldn't threaten these promises. So here's what happened. Uh, a couple hundred years later, the, the, well, after Solomon dies, the kingdom splits into the, the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. And a couple hundred years later, the Israelite kingdom falls to the Assyrians. And I could tell you what the Assyrians did to people they conquered, but there are women and children here. It is too horrible to speak out loud. They, they, take, they, take, off, they take all the people of Israel and they, they spread them out and they bring other people to live in Israel. And you, there's, there's no, nothing that looks like Israel anymore. But the southern kingdom, Judah, continues on. And they're like, well, I mean, that happened to, to Israel, sure, but they don't have a descendant of David on their throne. We do. And they don't have the temple. We do. So we're good. So the prophet Jeremiah comes in and he gives this, this famous sermon called the Temple Sermon in Jeremiah chapter 7. And he says, all of you who come and, and you, you make your sacrifices and you, you do all this, all this stuff, God doesn't like it. It doesn't matter because he knows that once you leave this place, you go, you, you, you leave the temple and you go take advantage of the poor. You take advantage of the widow. You take advantage of the orphan. You exploit people. And then you just run back here to the temple and, and he calls it a den of robbers. You go out and you do all the stealing and then you come back to your den, the temple. And you say, we have the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord the temple of the Lord. In other words, what could possibly happen to us? Because we are God's people and we have the temple. And Jeremiah, Jeremiah warns them. He says, if you continue like this, you will lose your temple and you will lose your king and you will lose your land. And what do you think happened? They all repented? No, they just kept on presuming. In Jeremiah's lifetime, in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came and completely, in 586, he finished destroying Jerusalem. Took, uh, took all of the, the landed gentry, all of the intelligentsia, all of the, all of the uh, government officials, he rounded them all up, and those that he didn't kill, he marched off in chains to his capital in Babylon. And he left only the peasants to work the land to make sure that the, the agricultural products still flowed to Babylon. Everything was over with. The, the children of Israel went into exile, exiled from their, their homeland. The exile shattered their assumptions, all their hopes, 
all their dreams, they rightly concluded that it was their own sin that led to exile. The exile meant no land, no king, no temple. And it, it threatened to destroy their identity as God's people. Imagine what it was like for a young teenager named Daniel. He's a bright kid. He's from a good family. His, his parents are well-connected. But none of that means anything anymore. He looks ahead of him and he sees uh, King Jeconiah there in the same shackles on his hands and feet that Daniel has. And as he marches in a long line chained together with all the exiles, he looks up in the sky and he sees the smoke from the royal palace mixing with the smoke from the temple. Everything he'd ever known is being left behind. Everything he'd ever loved and dreamed about has been destroyed. The promised land is now occupied by an invading army. All is lost. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe you know what that's like when your whole life is going up in smoke. When you lose your job or lose your house or lose all your money or lose your spouse. When your dreams are dashed on the hard rocks of hard knocks and bad luck and injustice. When relationships you invested in at great cost are now distant or estranged or just plain over. When promises are broken. When it would make a lot of sense for you to just give up and nobody could really blame you. Maybe you thought your own sin caused it. Maybe somebody else hurt you so deeply that you, you wonder if God stopped protecting you. When promises are broken. In fact, you're even tempted to think that God has given up on you. Because after all, wasn't God supposed to have my back? My dear, dear friends, this is where faith shows up. This is where hope comes through and does its best and hardest work when promises are broken. Sometimes it's when everything falls apart and we get serious again about God, about our faith. Unfortunately for some of us, it's only in those hardest times that we, that we get serious and start reading God's word and praying daily and making participation in the community of faith a priority. So what I'm going to show you next is the pattern, the model, the, the script for how resilient faith sustains the faithful through the hardest times. I'm going to take us to the book of Lamentations, where the same Jeremiah who gave, who gave the temple sermon, he's often referred to as the weeping prophet. He's crying out in anguish and despair over the fall of Jerusalem. For two and a half chapters, he's cried and wailed and complained and said, there is no more hope. A couple of examples. He says, for all these things I weep, tears flow down my cheeks. No one is here to comfort me. And who might encourage me are far away. My children have no future, for the enemy has conquered us. I have cried until the tears no longer come. My heart is broken. My spirit is poured out in agony as I see the desperate plight of my people. Two and a half chapters, he spends crying out to God, saying there's no hope. And then he comes to our pattern that we must remember when we get to those hardest times. Lamentations 3, 18. He says, so I say my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped for, hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet, I call this to my mind, to my heart, and therefore I have hope. 
And here's where we get to our script for when it all goes wrong. Because the Lord's great love, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. For every, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We sang, we sang that in the song and this is where it comes from. Great is your faithfulness. This is, this is uttered by somebody who has lost everything. Who doesn't look around and say, oh, look how I'm blessed. They've lost everything. And he says, great is your faithfulness. You see, hope is based in the character of God. The God who promises and remains steadfast. And that hope remains steadfast in the face of any and every circumstance. And Jeremiah says, I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly on the salvation of the Lord. This right here is the turning point in the story of God's people. When they decided they would not give up on God. They said to themselves, we don't even need the promises of God to stay faithful to God. With no temple and no king, they decided on, this is for the history nerds, just if you're interested in, in, in what happened to the Israelites, they decided on three key markers that they would hang on to. They would hang on to Sabbath, the seventh day rest. They would hang on to the purity laws, especially not eating unclean meats like pork. And they would hang on to synagogue worship. With no temple, they gathered in groups of at least 10 families to gather on the Sabbath, read scripture, pray, and sing. Sound familiar? You see, real faith, veteran faith, gritty faith, mature faith, obeys God because God is God and not because of what God can do for me. As Jada Edwards says, not every victory comes from rescue. A lot of victories come from resilience. So when you want to give up, you remember. Remember what God has already brought you through. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, you've already come. Remember that your hope is in the God who loves you even when life falls apart. And remember what God is in the business of doing. Remember that beauty comes out of ashes and life springs out of death. Success is often birthed out of failure. There might be pain in the night, but joy comes in the morning. And remember that resurrection follows crucifixion. Jada Edwards again, there is no threat or fear or loss that can stand against the power and person of God. My job as one of your pastors is to help you discover how God sees, knows, and loves you. To help you to enjoy God's forgiveness and how your identity in Christ can, can drown out all those lies you've been told. That you're not pretty enough or smart enough or good enough. To help you use your God-given talent and abilities to live out God's calling in your life and enjoy healthy and whole relationships and to build the kingdom of God. And, and that's what today is about, to build up your faith muscle, your spiritual grit, so that when the hard times come, you are unshaken, resolute in your trust in God's promises. So what happened to God's promises? Were they broken forever? This sermon comes out of a lecture I gave at a Bible college a long time ago that's called God's Promises, Broken Forever? Question mark. Remember Abraham's promise of a land for his descendants? What happened to that? 
Jesus came preaching. It, it, the, the gospel of Mark was the first gospel written. And Jesus' very first words were, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. The kingdom of God is not limited to that little plot of land in Palestine that you can fit between Denton and Waco. The reign and rule of God is so much bigger. It's every heart surrendered to the word of God and the will of God. The kingdom of God grows every time an unjust system like slavery or apartheid or redlining is dismantled in the name of Jesus. The kingdom of God starts small like a mustard seed and then it grows and grows. The kingdom of God arrives when a tax collector says to a whole group of, of people, I'm going to pay back four times everything I've stolen. The kingdom of God grows when the blind see and the lame walk and the deaf hear. The kingdom of God grows when you and I learn that our sin can be forgiven because Jesus died on the cross and we can be released to fulfill our destiny in the kingdom. The kingdom of God grows every time a graduate from Pastor Abraham's seminary in India goes back to their home village and they start praying for people and hundreds of people come to faith in Jesus. The children of Israel lost a plot of land a fraction the size of Texas and the children of God gained a kingdom that will fill the whole earth. God's promise seemed broken, but the fulfillment was so much better. Turn to your neighbor and say, all God's promises are yes in Jesus. You see, when, when God's promises seem broken, they are merely deferred. And the waiting and the hoping is how we build our trust, our faith in God. Remember King David, how he was promised a descendant who would rule Israel forever? 2 Samuel 7, your house and your kingdom will continue for all, before me for all time and your throne will be secure forever. In Matthew chapter one, it doesn't start talking about Jesus. It starts talking about the line of David. Uh, so David begat Solomon and Solomon begat uh, Asa and Asa. And you're like, oh, the begats again. Didn't we already do this in Genesis? And, 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 and begat, and you're like, oh, those names sound kind of familiar. Those are, those are some kings. And then the exile. And then all the names are not kings right? And then, so, so actually, actually it starts with Abraham. It says 14 generations from Abraham to David and 14 generations from David to the exile and 14 generations from the exile to the Messiah. Why does Matthew tell us that there's 14, 14, 14? Okay, I'm not going to get into the nerdiness of this, but the name David is DVD in, in Hebrew and that's 464. And 4 plus 6 plus 4 is 14. Matthew is telling us this is all about the line of David, right? And so it gets down to Joseph. Joseph was engaged to a woman named Mary who was pregnant by a miracle of the Holy Spirit. And God tells Joseph in a dream to go ahead and marry her and when she is born to name him Jesus. We tend to think this is important because the name Yeshua means deliverer and Jesus was born to deliver us from slavery. But it's also important because when a Jewish man names his son on the eighth day, he gives up any right to ever disclaim paternity. If that's not his baby, when he names that son, he adopts that son. So, Jesus was adopted by a descendant of David, making him not only the son of God, but a son of David. Just like we're sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, but by adoption we're made sons and daughters of God, Jesus was not only a good king, is not only a good king, he's a perfect king. 
and he's the king of kings. And not only will he not only rule Israel, but his reign is even now filling up the whole world. And he will not only rule for a lifetime, but he will rule the new heavens and the new earth forever. Because God the Father raised Jesus from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit and gave him a name above every other name so that at his name one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say it again. All the promises of God are yes in Jesus. What did we say? When it seems like God's promises are broken, they are merely deferred and we are merely waiting and hoping so that we can build our trust, our faith in God. Remember King Solomon and his question about the temple? Will God really dwell on earth? Well, first that answer, that that question was answered yes when Jesus took on flesh and lived among us. Acts 2 tells us that after Jesus was resurrected and ascended to the Father, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descended on the believers in Jerusalem. And in fact, the Spirit filled them. And the answer to God's question is yes, God will really dwell on earth with human beings, but not in temples made by human hands, but rather the temple of the human heart because God the Spirit lives in us. Paul tells the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6, you, each of you, all y'all are God's temple of the spirit. The presence of God is not fragile for us the way it was for the Israelites because Jesus made a way for the spirit to dwell in us. And now I want you to say it with meaning this time because now we've answered all three promises. I want you to turn to your neighbor and I want you to tell them emphatically, all God's promises are yes in Jesus. This right here, this is where I've been heading all morning. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. The Apostle Paul, an expert, an expert on the Old Testament and all God's promises, a Hebrew of Hebrew, who's had his life radically changed by an encounter with Jesus. He's the one who tells us, for all God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. I didn't make it up. It's Paul. It's the word of God. And here's what, he, here's what he asks us to do, to respond to God's yes in Jesus with our own yes. Can we get part B up there? It's probably late. Okay. And then we respond through our Christ, our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. All God's promises are yes in Jesus, and we respond with amen, which is our yes, back to God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that all of God's promises are fulfilled in Jesus? Do you believe that not only has he, has he begun, but he has more to do? The, 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 the kingdom of God is filling the whole earth, but it hasn't yet, but it will someday. Someday the new heavens and the new earth will, will, will come together and, the, and God's reign and rule will be complete for all of reality. That day is coming. And, and one day he will be king, not just of the faithful, but of the whole universe. The promises of God that are yes in Jesus have begun to be fulfilled and they will be even more fulfilled. This is the promise that we have because of what God has done for us in Christ. In the couple of minutes we have left, we've been talking about promises and the promises that, that we receive from God and, and our hope that we have in these promises. 
In these couple of minutes, I wanna proclaim just a few of God's promises over you. Anyone in the sound of my voice right now, whether in this room or on our podcast, I'm gonna invite you to close your eyes. Lay your hands on your knees and open your palms. And I want you to open your palms as a way to receive these promises. And after each, if you receive that promise, give God your amen aloud so that your yes and amen may ascend to God for his glory. 1 John 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if you believe it, amen. Colossians 1 13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Ephesians 1 5, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Amen. John 8, 36 says, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Amen. Isaiah 40, 31, But those whose hope is in the Lord, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Amen. James 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to you. Amen. Luke 6, forgive and you will be forgiven. Amen. Matthew 23 puts it like this. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Amen. Deuteronomy 31, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Amen. In Psalm 50, the Lord says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Amen. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Amen. 1 Corinthians 10. God is faithful. He will not allow any temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out. Amen. Philippians 4, Paul says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Amen. Matthew 6, Seek you first the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and all his righteousness, and all these things, clothing, food, shelter, will be added to you. Amen. Proverbs 3, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Amen. Isaiah 54, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love will not depart from you. Amen. And finally, Romans 8, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Amen. I'm gonna invite you to repeat after me a short prayer. I'll give you one line at a time. And if this is in your heart, utter it to God. Repeat after me. Father in heaven, I'm sorry for running from you. Thank you for sending Jesus, for fulfilling all your promises, for forgiving my sin, for calling me into your kingdom. In the name of Jesus, amen.